Hello and welcome to the Clinical Care Options and Global Medical Education Psychiatry and Neurology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Prakash Masan. Today's episode features Dr. Leslie Citrom, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the New York Medical College, and Joseph McAvoy, a Case Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry at Augusta University Health. They will be discussing diagnosing TD in clinical practice. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Tardive Dyskinesia and Psychiatric Illness. For more information on Dr. Citrom and Dr. McAvoy, along with links to other TD programs, including other podcasts and clinical thought medical commentaries, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say about this important topic. Welcome, everybody, to our podcast. I'm Dr. Leslie Citrom, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York Medical College. We're going to talk about the Abnormal Involuntary Movement Scale Examination, Telepsychiatry, and Tips on Looking for TD or Doing the AIMS Exam. And with me is my good friend, Dr. Joe McAvoy. Welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you. Yeah, it's always fun when we get to talk about our favorite subject and that happens to be TD. And I want to start off actually by asking you, what is the AIMS anyway, and can it be done efficiently? Well, the, the AIMS is a wonderfully well-established uh, scale. It's been around for decades, thoughtfully put together to uh, methodically take the examiner through a, re- a very well-reasoned uh, set of steps to bring out and, and give uh, exposure to any movements uh, in the tardive dyskinesia realm that the patient might be making. It, uh, it, there are clear instructions, uh, and uh, the, the scoring is usually very reliable among, among raters. And uh, the, the, the only uh, minor gripe one might have with the, with the AIMS, given the current time pressure that uh, clinicians are under, uh, is that it takes a while to do. If you, if you want to do the whole thing and do it exactly as the instructions uh, direct, uh, direct you to, uh, the, uh, you know, the key question is, uh, can it be done efficiently? And, 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 and there, are some, there are some things one might suggest. Uh, the, uh, you want to focus on things that will bring out the movements at, at, at a high enough level and clear enough to detect even new TD. And you want to get a sense of how the movements are when people are under uh, a, a little bit of anxiety or stress or excitement, as might happen if they're in a social situation or out at work, because you know this is where the real issue with TD comes in, where People start pulling back from social uh, contact, pulling back from work because of the movements, and 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 so on, you know, given the time pressure, I, I focus a lot on activation maneuvers. I ask patients to hold their uh, their mouth open, uh, and then to touch their fingers uh, to their thumbs sequentially. And while they're doing these two things. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're focusing on them. And sometimes this releases movements uh, that, that wouldn't have otherwise uh, been, been, been immediately apparent. The other one I do is ask people to hold their hands straight out in front of them, their arms straight out in front of them, let their wrists go limp, uh, fingers uh, loose, 
And then to tell me five words beginning with the letter T or R or something like that. And again, it's, it's putting them under a bit of strain uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to activate movements that might not be there at rest. Now, of course, if you're gonna waste your time trying to explain to people exactly in detail what you want them to do, you're gonna use up a lot of time on that. So, and, 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 and some of these things like holding your mouth open are not kind of socially routine. Uh, so I, I, right from the beginning, show them everything I want them to do. I model it. I, you know, hold my mouth open. And they think, you know, well, he looks like an idiot. Maybe it's fine for me to do it as well. And I hold my arms out in front of, you know, I show them exactly what I want them to do. And usually that speeds things along. You know, the patient gets it. They, they uh, 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 you know, they, they're, they're very much willing to go along. Now, uh, one, uh, one other issue that's new to the whole concept of what is the aims, what is, what's it about how to do it efficiently, is, uh, is, is the transition we've made hastened by the pandemic into virtual, virtual examinations and you know you really have to have your planning in place uh, to be able to do that well. And perhaps we can talk about this a bit more as 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 we move along. But you know you have to have the person seated far enough away from the camera to see them. You have to have a sequence of things. You have to prioritize. No, you're not going to ask the person to take their shoes off so you can see their toes. Well, you know, Joe, I I do the same thing. Um, I model what I want my patient to do because. Frankly, it's difficult to understand verbal instructions that are very complex. And if you just show them touching your thumb to your fingers, they can get it and they'll mimic you and opening your mouth and sticking out your tongue. They, it's, I think you're right. People don't want to stick out their tongue at you, uh, but you're sticking out your tongue at them. So they feel more comfortable doing that. You know, when I do the aims, actually, I start by first looking at them in the waiting area, see what they're doing while sitting. And when I escort them to the consultation room, I see how they walk. And right away, I, I've gotten a good chunk of the aims done. That walking bit is really instructive because when you're walking, that's an activation maneuver too. And I'd look to see if their hands are moving like those piano playing movements. So this can all be efficiently done, I think in about five minutes. And you've done basically what the AIMS requires. You can fill out that form and fill it out intelligently. You know, those are seven items for the seven muscle groups, four in the face, one for the upper extremities, one for the trunk, one for the lower extremities. You have the, uh, the global assessment of the movement. You have an assessment of is the patient aware of the movement? Or are they distressed by it? And they, it even prompts you to ask about dental status because that can be confusing, right? If they're moving their tongue and they have ill-fitting dentures. But you know, I've never met a person with TD who has really good fitting dentures. That's something to keep in mind too. So I, I think we do the same thing. You in Georgia, me in New York. It basically comes down to it. It's it's fundamentally a great scale, well thought through, and you know reasonable clinicians have have made it manifest in the world, either in person or or in the in the virtual space. So so could could you highlight? I mean, you quickly went over some real pearls there about what are the, the you know the key items on the aims. What are we trying to get out of these things, like the global, like the subjective judgment of distress. 
So my own personal opinion about this, Joe, is I, I, I most important item on the Ames is actually item number eight, the one that gets ignored a lot. And people focus on the individual muscle groups and the ratings there and add up all those scores. And that's called the total dyskinesia score that's used in research. But really, I like to communicate things much more simply. And I'd like to be able to say this person has severe, moderate, or mild tardive dyskinesia. The best way to do that is item eight, the global assessment, which actually the instructions now are that you give the global rating what you gave as the highest rating for any of the muscle groups you've examined. So if someone rated a four, the global is a four. If the highest rating you gave on any of the seven items is a three, you'd give a three for the global. Let me take a step back now for our listeners. The individual items of the aims are rated from zero to four. Zero means there's no movement in an individual muscle group that you're looking at. One means maybe there's a movement, maybe not. You're not quite sure. Two is the movement's there and anyone who's trained can certainly see it. Three is anyone who's untrained can certainly see it. It's really obvious. And a four is kind of extreme and you can see it from across the parking lot. So if you think this through, if any of the muscle groups that you've examined scores a four, that's extreme. And your global rating would be a four because the urgency to treat is a four, no matter where that movement is. If you have, let's say a whole bunch of ones and your global is gonna be a one, even though your total dyskinesia score research-wise would be a seven. And a seven, well, hey, isn't that TD? Well, no, because every muscle group I looked at was a one, which meant I didn't know if there was a movement there or not. So the urgency is not there to treat. But what if that seven total score was based on four for the tongue, three for the jaw? Well, that's terrible TD, and there's high urgency to treat. The global will tell you that the global rating was a four, and then you're not gonna fool around with that. You're gonna to wanna to treat it. That's why I think item eight is the most important item of the aims that helps us communicate to others the severity of the TD. How do you get at the subjective distress people feel from this? Because we know some folks usually very severely ill, often, uh, institutionalized folks may not even be able to agree with you that they have a movement or acknowledge having having a movement. But but a lot of folks uh, out in the community, it, it's really troubling. And even if it's a mild, it's not a mild in their mind. You raise a great point there. You know, uh, severity is in the eye of the beholder uh, for for a lot of things. And a mild TD that looks mild to me. Uh, it may not be mild to that individual suffering from it. So I would say to myself, oh, this is just mild. You know, I've seen a lot worse at the state hospital. This is all, you know, this doesn't look like much, but that person doesn't want to go out in public, doesn't want to shop until 10 o'clock at night because they're worried their neighbors would see them, doesn't want to go to church anymore because they don't want to, you know, have people look at them. And, you know, it doesn't look so bad, but to them, it's absolutely terrible. The aims. Uh, isn't actually very very strong in this department. 
of how to assess uh, a person's level of distress. Sure, there's an item related to it, but it doesn't really get at the social impairment, functional impairment, uh, and impairments in day-to-day -day family life that we can often encounter in people with TD. So we need to ask those questions independently. And we're going to ask about, of course, a person's individual awareness of their movement and how it affects them. And then we'll ask, you know, does it affect you in talking with others and doing things with others and working and doing things you like to do? Uh, that's a conversation that has to take place that the AIMS doesn't cover in the detail that we need to cover. So you've pointed out really one of the problems with the AIMS. It's still an excellent scale phenomenologically, allows us to quantify the movements, but we also have to find out about what it means to that individual person. So you're right uh, if, that we need to, to figure that out. Clinicians nowadays are under substantial time pressure in terms of uh, at most clinics, uh, most uh, uh, private, public, university, uh, hospitals, clinics, uh, there, there's even waiting lists to get care. And we're all seeing patients in shorter periods of time than we might like to. Uh, and we have you know, new priorities added to what we're supposed to check at every visit. So you know, I, 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 I was thinking about how, how can we improve our, our detection of TD? And I'm gonna throw a couple of ideas out there for, for your thoughts on them. Uh, you know, the, the possibility of having people in the waiting room or being sent at home before they come in, you know, very brief questionnaire about have you noticed any movements and, and, and providing that to the clinician before, you know, uh, just before the person comes in. And uh, in, in, in some cases, it's, it, it would be great if, if, if a patient agrees to this, to have a family member, an important other, a staff person at the personal care home also have a brief questionnaire. Uh, ha have you noticed any movements? What should I be looking for? You know, so that the, the clinician on this busy day can know this is something uh, to focus on. Uh, and to train the support staff at your clinic uh, that you, you know, we really value their input. If they notice, you know, as, as you, you talk about when you see the person in the waiting room, well, they might see the person for 10 minutes sitting there uh, in, in, in the waiting area and, and notice some movements and, and, and ha having a way uh, uh, to, uh, to, to cue you in. Now, in, in the virtual uh, assessment, it's really crucial to have some other uh, individual who sees a good bit of the person live uh, to be able to tell you about movements they see to say, you know, in, in, in some uh, telepsychiatry settings, you see you know, uh, uh, mid chest to top of head. You don't even see the hands, uh, let alone the trunk or, or, or the feet. What are your thoughts about these kind of uh, approaches? I think they're great ideas. You know, having someone fill out a form, make it part of the general screening form that uh, many clinics actually have already in place, adding a, a couple of items regarding abnormal movements and also including family members in this discussion is also critical. As you pointed out, not everyone's going to be aware of their dyskinetic movements. And we've all seen people who have absolutely no insight into their movements, but everyone notices them and it impacts 
on how other people interact with them and it's highly stigmatizing. So we do wanna take care of it, we do wanna treat it, but they're often unaware of it. And on the other hand, we have people who are exquisitely aware of their abnormal movements. So questionnaires, not, not a bad idea. I, I like what you said about the telehealth visits. You need someone on the other end holding that phone so you can see the whole body. And actually it's an ideal time to check the feet, right? They're remote. You, you can ask them to remove their shoes and socks and no worries there. And so you actually do have an opportunity actually with telehealth that uh, you may be reluctant to look at the feet in the clinic. Now, just a, 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 my hint to those listening, I don't spring it on people that I'm going to uh, ask them to, you know, take off their shoes and socks. I warn them ahead of time. Next time I see you, I will want to examine any movements you may have in your feet. So please make sure you keep your feet clean at the next visit so that you'll be comfortable taking off your shoes and socks. And actually that works wonders. If they're living in a communal living situation, I make sure the house manager is aware of that as well. But coming back to the remote, any additional uh, hints on doing the AIMS remotely? You've mentioned uh, a couple of them already, the, uh, and, and they all have to do with you know, planning, thinking about you know, how, how I'm going to approach this. If you just open up the screen and hope everything will go well, well, you know, maybe that isn't going to turn out uh, as, as successful in getting all of the visualization and all the detection of movement that you'd like. So, you know, your approach of telling the person in advance, look, you know, next time my, my, my EMR has told me that next time it's, it's time for your uh, movement uh, assessment. I, if you can have a family member, if, if, if the patient is at home or arrange for a staff member to be there, uh, to have them, to have those other uh, individuals first give their report as to what they see there with the patient, but then also to help you set up a sequence of camera positions. You know, one a good ways away so that you can see tip of toes to top of head if possible, uh, at rest, uh, either you know, sitting in the chair and, and standing, then a bit more, uh, a bit closer, doing some of the activation maneuvers. And when you really wanna look at the face and, 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 and the person holding their mouth open and the tongue, you need that, ca you need that camera to be fairly close and you need, you need some pretty good lighting. So, so thinking through uh, what your sequence is involving somebody else and having uh, uh, several different distances and angles to give you the visualization you need is important. Absolutely. You know, sometimes people get the idea that maybe it's not going to be definitive enough, but, you know, the primary outcome measure for the clinical trials of tardive dyskinesia for the two medicines that we have out there, it was assessed through remote video ratings that were recorded. So we can do a decent job in assessing the dyskinetic movements uh, remotely. It certainly is technologically possible, provided we, we prepare for it. Having been one of the uh, site clinicians who implemented the AIMS that was being videotaped for these remote raiders, I think they were very thoughtful. The camera, you know, they, we, they didn't move the camera around, but they made sure they had a very good 
a full tip of toes to top of head view of the person, both uh, sitting and standing uh, in the sequence we, we, we put them through, we, you know, with me as the local person doing it for their ratings. But also they gave us all flashlights, which I still have and cherish today, that we could uh, shine into the person's mouth so that these raters could see the, the, the patient's tongue. It was, it was very thoughtful, very skillful, very well planned. So what should clinicians consider if, if, if they hear from family or staff that the person has some movements or the patient says, I have some movements, or you notice some movements? What should a, a, a clinician consider in terms of a differential diagnosis? Well, you know, here the AIMS can actually help us. Because if uh, one reads the instructions on the back of the AIMS form, it says you want to observe the patient walking. And you also want to flex and extend their upper extremities. And doing those two things will give you some clues. Because one of the diagnostic conundrums is asking ourselves, is this tardive dyskinesia or is this drug-induced Parkinsonism? When we see them walk and they're walking with little steps and they have no arm swing, we'll think of drug-induced Parkinsonism because someone with TD will have good arm swing and won't walk in little steps. When we flex and extend their upper extremities, if there is any resistance or even cogwheeling, we're gonna think drug-induced Parkinsonism because people with TD won't necessarily have any rigidity like that. So the instructions for the AIMS can actually help us think through this differential diagnosis. And why do I mention it? Well, drug-induced Parkinsonism and tardive dyskinesia are kind of the opposite. And the treating the two of them involves completely different medicines. And moreover, treatment for one may worsen the other, which means a treatment for drug-induced Parkinsonism like benztropine or cogentin can make tardive dyskinesia worse. And a treatment for tardive dyskinesia like a VMAT2 inhibitor can potentially make drug-induced Parkinsonism worse. So we wanna get this right. Now, of course, if someone has both, then we have to figure out a strategy of what to do next. And my usual course of, 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 of events is to take care of the drug-induced Parkinsonism first, because that's generally easier, then I'll work on the TD. But you do want to get these two movement disorders straight because the treatments are very different. The AIMS actually helps us along with that. You make several wonderful points there. And, and it's, it's the common sense of, of approach of when you uh, hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. Uh, you know, think of things, think of the common mistakes. And, and students trainees, people new, new to the area, uh, I, I think, see akathisia, see, see restlessness, motor fidgetiness, uh, scooting around in the seat, uh, inability to sit still and say, is this part of dyskinesia? Uh, or they see you know, the tremor of Parkinson's. Uh, or they see a person who's also taking lithium and has more of an intention tremor and say, well, is, it, is this part of dyskinesia? The, the, the rate of mistakes, of errors, of failure to appreciate until they can bring the person to a, a more experienced uh, movement disorder clinician, uh, those are the very common ones. You know, the frequency of, of mi mistaking that this person might have Huntington's chorea is, you know, is important, but exceedingly rare. You know, you, a, a, 
you know, here I am almost 39 years old and I, uh, I, 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 I've seen exceedingly few, uh, less than five people with <clears throat> Huntington's career doing, during my entire life. Whereas every day I see people uh, with uh, restlessness, fidgetiness, uh, and tremor that I, you, know, you have to distinguish from Barnabas Kanuja. Absolutely. You know, uh, common things are, are going to be encountered every day in our clinical practice. And, you know, in terms of the drug-induced movement disorders, it's, it's going to be drug-induced Parkinsonism, tardive dyskinesia, and then figuring those two out. And akathisia thrown in there because, uh, you know, uh, akathisia is one of those movement problems that is uh, kind of not going away even with the newer second generation antipsychotics. And the treatments for each of these are very different one from another. So Joe, how often should we assess our patients for movement issues and, and how thorough should we be at, at these occasions? Well, I, I think a not unreasonable general standard might be, we ought to, we ought to have it come up on our electronic medical record, our, our our expected requirements, uh, somewhere in the range of every six months uh, uh, for, for, most, for most patients. If someone is older, especially uh, from, from 50 on up, the, the uh, yearly transition into tardive dyskinesia really accelerates. In younger people, it's maybe 5% of the, of the population per year developing tardive dyskinesia with the older drugs, uh, maybe one and a half, two percent with the newer drugs. But in the older population, uh, those numbers are much, much multiplied. So, so uh, in someone who's taking a first generation agent, uh, I'd wanna uh, do it at least every six months. Uh, uh, if someone's older and taking a first-generation agent, well, I think you need to think about every three months uh, uh, to, 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 to do a, an AIMS. On the other hand, you, you can do a very quick couple of activation maneuvers in one to two minutes, and, and I, I, I do that more frequently, may, maybe even as part of, 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 of every visit. And you know, as Dr. Citrome said, you can you can learn a lot by walking out and paying attention to what the person looks like in the waiting room when you when you walk up and say hi, and then what they look like walking back to your office. You know, I, I agree with you, Joe, that uh, doing it that frequently is actually going to be helpful for your patients, and a special case is when you actually have identified tardive dyskinesia and treating it. There, I really want to have a good quantitative measure of what I'm doing. I want to, you know, make sure that those movements are being reduced. The only way to do that is by actually looking and, and doing those ratings. So when, when treating, you're going to pay even special attention, more attention to this. And I think you can do a lot just by opening your eyes and seeing what the patient's doing in the waiting area and as they walk to your consultation room. And the aims, I, I think, can be your best friend when it comes to treatment. And patients will appreciate the care and attention that you're providing in, in terms of making sure that you're, you're doing the right thing. And of course, if the movements aren't getting any better, then you, know, you need to rethink, is it really tardive dyskinesia? Are they taking that medicine? What else may be going on? Well, we're 
running out of time here. We've covered a lot of ground regarding the aims and what to look for. Of course, we can spend all night talking about this, but maybe uh, on another occasion, we can expand on these topics some more. I'd like to thank our listeners of this podcast and uh, urge you to listen to others in this series of on tardive dyskinesia. Thanks so much. And thanks, Joy. It's always a pleasure working with you. It's always a pleasure to work with you, Dr. Citrom. And again, thank you to all of those who, who tuned in to listen. Thank you very much, Dr. Citrom and Dr. McAvoy. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view other programs on TD, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.